I am just so pleased to get to unpack this little piece of scripture with you this morning. Pastor Dan has been walking us through this little letter of 1 Thessalonians, and actually, this text is one of his favorites. So thank you, Pastor Dan, for graciously handing it to me. He's away this week. He's preaching at Wallenstein, so you can say a quick prayer for him as well. And let's start by recalling where we've been so far in 1 Thessalonians. If you remember all the way back to the first week in 1 Thessalonians 1, we were talking about living with eternity in view. Then we spoke about working hard for the gospel, about the authority of God's word, about suffering and persecution. And then last week about purity and watching how we walk. And this series has been framed under three themes. And those themes are the central thrusts of Paul's letter, faith, hope, and love. This morning is going to be no different. We're going to walk through our text, seeing God's call on us as Christians to faith, love, and especially this morning, hope. So let's begin in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. And so Paul begins this little section with brothers and sisters. That's his shorthand for Christians. He says, Christians, we do not want you to be uninformed. Now that word, uninformed, is the word for ignorant, to not know something, whether for lack of information or lack of intelligence. In this case, probably lack of information, because most commentators believe that this section was written to answer a specific question that the Thessalonians had. So what were they asking about, and what are we supposed to be informed about? About those who sleep in death. So Paul wants the Thessalonians, he wants you and I by extension, to be informed about what happens to Christians when they die. Now, the Thessalonians were probably asking this because when they came to Christ, they likely assumed that the second coming of Christ, his return, would happen so soon that none of them would die before he arrived. And then some of the saints started to die, and they wondered, well, what has happened to them? Now, Paul says we're not to be uninformed, and then he, inspired by the Holy Spirit, informs us. He gives us the information. So brace yourselves, friends. Get ready to be excited. We're talking about heaven. We're talking about Christ's return, about resurrection. Now, maybe this isn't something you think a lot about. Maybe if somebody came to you and asked you to describe the afterlife, you'd kind of fumble and stumble around some like vague ideas of going to be with God in paradise forever. Very little conviction or tangibles. Don't worry, me too. <laughs> and it sounds like the Thessalonians were in the same boat because they're asking. Or, or maybe you've got kind of a caricatured view of heaven. It's just fat babies with wings, strumming harps on clouds forever and ever, amen. Yeah, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, okay? There's a double negative there for emphasis. I really want you to be informed, he's saying. So this morning, we're going to get the information. We're going to get excited about heaven, about the coming of our Lord. So what does Paul then give us as the information? Let's go to verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep 
in him. So the very first thing Paul does is he links our understanding of what happens after death to the gospel, to the good news about Jesus. Refresher, he says, Jesus died. He died. And he rose again. And so whatever our destiny is, it is tied directly to our belief in Christ living, dying, and rising again. You'll notice that phrase in there, we believe. What we believe matters for our destiny. And then Paul says, because we believe in Jesus, because we believe he is risen, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. You can hear him. He's reassuring the Thessalonians. He's saying that the faithful who believed in Jesus but died before he returns, they're not being left out of the plan. They're actually, they're with Jesus now. And someday God is going to bring with Jesus all of the dead in Christ. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of our Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Paul says that whoever is alive, when Christ comes again, they're not going to precede those who are already dead. Meaning that you've got two camps, right? The, the dead, but now resurrected saints, and the alive, but now transformed saints, they're going to share equally in the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, he keeps using this phrase, fallen asleep. You see that there? That's a euphemism for death, for the death of the body. He's saying the body has been laid down, unmoving. Now, some have suggested that that phrase and verses like this are suggesting uh, sort of an intermediate state between death and resurrection, where there's nothing going on, like a soul sleep. Maybe you've heard of that. Or that verses like this and others um, give proof to a different kind of extra spiritual dimension. For the Roman Catholics, a purgatory, where you have to get the cleansing necessary to enter the presence of God. Now, the Apostle Paul is not offering either of those as real options. He's going to write elsewhere that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, there goes that intermediate state. And Christ actually says the same thing to the thief on the cross. Today, immediately, you're going to be with me in paradise. And actually, that, that moment on the cross also helps us dismantle any notions of purgatory. Christ's work is the only thing sufficient to cleanse us. We cannot earn that cleansing here on earth, and we cannot earn it in some extra spiritual dimension. Christ has already paid our way in full. And then, Paul moves into some teaching on Christ's second coming. So verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's quite a scene. You picturing that? We're reminded first and foremost, Jesus is coming back. The Lord himself is going to return. Jesus is coming back. And it's not going to be a secret when he does. It's going to be announced. 
The sense in the text is quite publicly with trumpets and angel voices, loud commands. This is actually how Christ's return is talked about all throughout Scripture. And then we see that the dead in Christ will rise. They're going to be resurrected. They're going to receive their glorified bodies. That's picking up on that fallen asleep metaphor for our bodies. Our bodies are laid down in death, but though they fall, they will rise. That is when our soul, which upon the moment of death becomes absent from the body to be present with the Lord, is re-embodied when the Lord comes down from heaven. Now remember verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so the departed saints, they're not doing something new. They're just mimicking what Christ has already done. They're following in his example. He died. He was laid down, body unmoving for three days, and then he rose again, just like that. We believe that God will bring with Jesus when he comes again all of those who have died in Christ to come and rise. Everyone's very calm about that. Are you excited, church? We're going to rise. Yeah, this is our hope. And from then on, for all of eternity, we are going to be embodied souls, just like Jesus Christ has his glorified body forever. And Paul says, for those Christians who are still alive, when all of this occurs, they're not going to miss out either. Now, they're not going to be resurrected, because they're still alive, but they'll be transformed. And look what it says, we who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Again, they're not doing something new. They're mimicking Jesus. He was caught up, taken up to heaven, into the clouds at his ascension in Acts 1 when his living body went to dwell with God. And actually, this verse is the only explicit reference to the word rapture. Now, rapture is a, it's a Latin word that's taken from that Greek verb, caught up. And most Christians, you've heard the word, right? We have a vague idea of that word. Maybe you've heard it in various phrases. Bachelor to the rapture. Some. Or maybe you watched those left-behind movies in youth group 100 years ago. Um, the idea is that living people are going to be snatched, grabbed, taken up into the clouds to meet the Lord. This is going to be a part of Christ's return to earth. And the picture is then that we, all of the saints throughout history, are going to escort Christ to earth like a parade for an arriving king. Now, we should get this out here. There are differing views on when this rapture will occur. Now, maybe you've heard words like this, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, mid-tribulation. There's differing views. And actually, there's differing views on Christ's return at the end of time in general. And here at Woodside, we believe that there is room for different interpretations on the end of time. There's arguments to be made from within the text. But the point here is that there will be living saints when the Lord returns. And then Paul gets to the main point. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. Wow, here's the point, he says. The destiny for the Christian is to be with the Lord forever. Forever. It's union with Jesus that is coming for you. 
whether you die still waiting for him to return or whether you are alive when he gets here. Our eternal fate for all of us who believe is the same. And so that union begins the moment you die. You go to be with Christ in heaven. Your body sleeps. And then someday, with lots of commotion and fanfare, Christ will return, re-embodying the dead, resurrecting us, and catching up the living to be with him. Paul wants us to be informed about these things. Jesus is coming back. We are going to rise again, and we are going to be with God forever. Yes, and this is when we, we're going to get our glorified bodies. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, and we're going to glorify God forever. We long for this. The Spirit and the bride, the church, say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. We long for this day, church. Now, let's go back to verse 13. Because Paul tells us why he wants us to know all of this. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. He wants us to be informed for a reason. The reason is so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. Now, not so that we don't grieve. We do grieve. We just do not grieve like everyone else. And there's kind of three implications we find in this verse. The first is that grief is not accompanied by hopelessness for the Christian. The text says that mankind, meaning all people who are outside of Christ, they grieve with no hope. When they face death, they're hopeless. They're, they're, they're without hope. And we are not to imitate that grief. Why? Because we have been informed about what happens to people when they sleep in death, meaning that we have hope. And maybe you hear this verse and you think, oh man, God's calling me to not be sad when a loved one dies. And so then you go into one of two extremes. Either you think, God's calling me not to be sad when a loved one dies. Loved one dies, okay. Button it up. Box up the emotions. Shelf them. Paint the good Christian smile on. And carry on. Or the other extreme. I can't not be sad. Therefore, I'm just going to plunge headlong. Wallow in hopelessness. God doesn't want either of those things. Neither of those is the call on the Christian. God knows that the death of a loved one causes grief and emotion around that grief. And actually, God is all for the expression of that emotion. Do you know Jesus wept at the loss of his friend? He wept. It caused him great grief. Please, friends, grieve loss. It's actually part of bearing God's image. Like, God did this. Jesus did this. And... He informed himself with the truth of Scripture. At the death of Lazarus, Lazarus, is, he's fallen asleep. He uses the same language. Now, why are we to inform ourselves with the truth of Scripture? So that we will not grieve like hopeless people. We grieve differently. We have a real, tangible, physical, eternal hope that is linked to the person of Jesus. Christians look at 
everything that is happening in the present with eternity in view. We face all of these physical realities with spiritual realities in mind. And we, we kind of know this. Like there's something deeply moving about a testimony of somebody who's experienced great loss. And although they're desperately sad, they keep their eyes just fixed with hope on Jesus. I think of Horatio Spafford, who after the death of all of his daughters in a boating accident, wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul. That kind of hope preaches all by itself. Now, there's, there's a second implication in this verse. Paul says he doesn't want Christians to be uninformed about death and therefore grieve like the rest of mankind, implying that the rest of mankind is uninformed about death. That's interesting, right? Because we kind of hear the opposite things sometimes from people. What? You believe in life after death? What kind of an ancient, archaic, mystical notion is that? Like, we've evolved enough to know that upon death there's just nothingness. Like, follow the science. Come on. It's like Christians are the ones without the knowledge. Like, we're missing information. Paul is saying the opposite thing. We have the scoop. It's the rest of mankind that is misinformed, or today's word, disinformed. They lack information, and that's actually leading them to despair, that they have no hope. And we can read that phrase at the end of verse 13, who have no hope, two different ways. That could mean that the rest of mankind feels hopelessness. They feel despair when they are faced with death. Because they believe that death is this ultimate end, they do not believe in Jesus. When they're faced with death, they despair. The other way to read that phrase is that they have no hope. Not that they don't feel hopeful when they're faced with death, but that hope is actually not available to them. They don't have a hope. Hope as a noun. And I think that actually both of those senses are true and what Paul intends to tell the Thessalonians here. And the reason I think that is because Paul actually follows up this letter with another one to them, where he actually addresses a bunch of the same questions, like they didn't quite get it. And the church is going through some suffering, and they're wondering about hope. So in 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul writes this, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all of those who have believed. And this includes you, because you've believed our testimony to you. So he tells the Thessalonians, you can take heart, you can have hope in suffering, because God is just, and he is going to act justly. They say, but when is God going to act justly? God will act justly when the Lord Jesus is revealed. That's at his second coming. And so for the believer, Christ's second coming is supposed to give us hope, even in suffering. 
Paul says to the Thessalonians, this includes you. Take heart. But for the unbeliever, Christ's second coming has no hope. And that is because Christ is coming again as the judge. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This isn't comfortable flannel graph Jesus anymore. This is a king coming to set his kingdom in order. And there's a lot of parallels in here. Christ's second coming either brings hope or no hope at all. Paul says that the unbeliever receives everlasting destruction. That runs parallel with the everlasting life that is promised to those who believe. He says the unbeliever will be shut out from the presence of God. Opposite, the believer will be with the Lord forever. Now, a bunch of the tangibles are the same. Human beings, all of us, regardless of what we believe about Jesus, we go on forever. There's an eternal nature to our souls. Now, the destination of that soul is profoundly different based on what we believe about Jesus. And that is why, if we're going to talk about heaven, we can't avoid talking about hell. And if we're going to talk about the second coming of Christ, we better talk about all that it entails. And it includes the judgment of wicked people. And so just like we are to be informed about heaven, we should be informed about hell. Because hell is real. It's, it's a place. It exists. In the Bible, it's, it's called a place of separation. It's depicted as unquenchable fire or total, utter darkness. Now, just like heaven isn't cartoon babies on clouds, hell is not some gothic torture chamber where a little red fella jams needles into people all day. No, it is a place of judgment where God's righteousness is expressed in wrath so that evil is dealt with permanently. Now, heaven and hell, those are critical parts of the Christian faith. You cannot have Christianity without those things. We have to talk about them. We have to be informed about them. And actually, we have to inform others about them. And that brings us to the last implication in verse 13, and sort of in the beginning of verse 14. And that implication is that our belief in Jesus' work is hope. It doesn't just lead us to hope, inspire us to hope, move us to hope. It might do those things also. But Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that is hope. Part of the good news, the gospel of Jesus, is that we are going to be with him forever. That he's actually gone to prepare a place for us. That we are going to be united with the life, with Jesus, with life eternal. And part of the good news, part of the gospel, is that Jesus is going to make right every wrong. Part of the good news is that he's going to judge sin perfectly. That the wicked will not go unpunished. 
That's part of the good news. The, the converse, this is, this is like a part of the conversation of what it means to go into all of the world and proclaim the gospel. And that is because, friends, if you're sitting here today and you do not believe in Jesus, or if you kind of assent to the idea of Jesus, but you haven't made him the authority over your whole life, there is no hope for you in death. Hope is unavailable to you. The paradise of heaven is not waiting for you when you die. This hope that I am talking about is for those of us who are leaning on Jesus, who are trusting in Jesus' work to save us. We're told that for us, there is no condemnation because we're in him. Now, conversely, there is condemnation for those who are not in him. Condemnation is not just for evil dictators. The Bible says that all people, you, me, and everybody, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all unable to enter the presence of God on our own goodness. We are not good enough. We have all fallen short. But covered in the goodness of Christ, we can enter his presence and we won't be condemned for entering. But those who do not trust in Christ's righteousness, instead trusting in their own, they will be condemned eternally. You kind of hear the opposite of this today, right? Well, I'm not totally sure if there's a God, but, you know, if I die and find out there's a God, I'm sure he's going to let me into heaven. I've been good. I'm a good person. I'm nice and stuff. That's enough, right? No. That's not enough. That's not enough. If anyone sets foot before a holy God uncovered by the righteousness of Christ, they will be separated from that God forever. Friends, it's not nothingness waiting for us when we die. What is waiting for us when we die is not so much a what, it's a who. And the who is a living and holy God. And so this morning, if you are here and you have not called on the name of Jesus to rescue you, do it. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. He will rescue you so much more than rescuing you. He will actually treat you like his own bride. He'll graciously give to you eternal life. This hope that I'm talking about can be yours today. You can share with us in eternal life. You can be resurrected with Christ. But if you do not call on the name of Jesus, someday soon, you will be separated from all beauty, all goodness, all truth. Yet you, you sit here today damned. I know that is sobering. It, it should be. Christians believe that that is the reality of existence. That's the truth. And so it matters. we got to talk about the truth. It's the truth that sets us free. And Christians, for us, this should bring urgency to our mission of disciple-making. Because our friends, for many of us, our family members who do not know the Lord, 
have no hope. But Paul ends this chapter, he ends this set of thoughts with instructions. He ends it with a therefore. He says, because of all of this discussion about heaven, about Jesus' second coming, because you're now informed Christians about what happens to people when they die, here's the instructions. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the outcome. He says, Christians, if a family member or a friend is grieving the loss of someone who died in Christ, encourage them with these words words. He says, give truth to the grieving. Don't minimize their pain. Don't sweep aside the emotions. You don't have to rush it. Don't do that. But do encourage one another with the word. Now, death, death is sad. Death is the enemy of life. It's so, so sad. But it is not the final word. It's certainly not the end and that information brings transformation. Reminding one another about the reality of heaven, that Christ's return is imminent, that information transforms grief. That brings real hope to despair. That brings real light into darkness. That brings real joy into sorrow. That information brings transformation. Now, maybe you're like me, and you feel like you never really know what to say to somebody when they've lost a loved one. Anyone else? I feel like I'm just so useless in those situations. You kind of walk down the line, thinking about you, praying for you and the family. Maybe you get to bring them a meal or meet a physical need. I, I always feel like it's just so flat and disingenuous. I just wish someone would tell me how to make it better. I want to fix things. Well, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us how to make it better. Encouragement through the word. That's what he says. Now, in time, with sensitivity, but we bring truth to the grieving. So friends, let me bring truth to those of you who are grieving. If you have lost a loved one who died with their hope built on Jesus' blood and righteousness, they are presently with the Lord. They're with God. And someday soon, they're going to rise again. They're going to follow in Jesus' resurrection. Their destiny is final. They're forever united with Jesus. They're going to be with him forever. He's going to be with them forever. Doesn't that bring hope to your soul? Man, I was sitting there working through this text just on the other side of that door thinking, how? How is this going to bring hope to people? God, it says it's going to do that. I don't know how. And I zoned out. I was just thinking about those of you in our congregation who've lost a loved one recently or who lost a loved one in tragic circumstances. And I was thinking, how? And I kind of zoned back in, and I realized I'd zoned out with my eyes on a picture that's on my wall. It was a picture of my opa who died a couple years ago, and all of a sudden, of God. Oh, I just sat there and cried. Wow! His body is in the ground waiting for Christ to come back and he is going to be resurrected 
when he does. That's the truth of the matter. Man, that infused my heart with hope. I hope that encourages you this morning. Now, it doesn't keep me from missing him, from reminiscing on those memories, from feeling desperately sad that I'm never going to hear his voice again. It clearly doesn't stop the tears from coming. But man, those words give me hope. Friends, let me encourage you with that hope this morning. So how are we supposed to live? Because we might be tempted to think that the Apostle Paul wrote this piece of Scripture so that he could talk about heaven and Jesus' imminent return. And although that is what he is talking about, it's not why he's talking about it. The purpose of the text in front of us this morning is to call Christians to action. Paul wrote this passage hoping that believers would encourage other believers. He wrote it so that there won't be hopeless Christians. He's saying if you see a brother or sister who is grieving loss without hope in view, encourage them to keep hope in view, to fix their eyes on Jesus, to refresh their minds with the truth of the gospel, to then be transformed by that renewing of their minds. This is what our passage is calling us to today, to actively encourage the despondent towards hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we should remember that all throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul keeps just kind of, he's just lifting the chins of the Thessalonians towards Christ's return. In chapter 1, they tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues you from coming wrath. Wait for the son who rescues. In chapter 2, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you, the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Chapter 3, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Jesus is coming with all his saints. Now we're in chapter 4. And in chapter 5, again, he's going to remind these Christians that the Son is coming from heaven to rescue us. Jesus is coming soon. And so, all of this talk, the Apostle Paul has covered a lot of things so far. Trials, persecution, suffering, holiness, right living, purity, the Word of God, all of it. He links all of it to the return of the King. Paul's eyes are so fixed on that reality that he can't give instructions to the church without that spilling into it. Friends, Jesus' resurrection guarantees ours. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then you believe that you will rise from the dead. We serve a living God. He's not dead. He's not buried in some tomb. His body is not laid down. It doesn't sleep. He's been resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to these words from Paul in another one of his letters. But if Christ is in you, then though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Did you catch all of that? First of all, He says, yes, you're going to die. You're going to die. Your body is subject to death. But look, the Spirit gives life. Life. This is the same spirit who had enough power to resurrect God 
That spirit is living in you. Actually, he makes you live. He's going to raise you up with Christ someday. And there's, there's a present tense in that passage as well. It says the spirit gives life because of righteousness. He's already, he's presently giving you life to the fullest as he works righteousness in your heart, as you're sanctified into the image of the Son. The Spirit is encouraging you towards the Word. That's what we're supposed to do with one another, encouragement through the Word. And so our present reality is just mimicking our future destiny. God is with us now through his Holy Spirit. And someday soon, we are going to be with him forever. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word, your perfect word that guides us in all truth. And we're thankful for the reality that Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, is going to return to this earth. Lord, we're thankful and we believe wholeheartedly in his resurrection. And we know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what guarantees our own. Lord, we long to be with you. And so we cry, come Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.